It says an awful lot about you guys in a good way if you were here last week and you're with us again this week. (laughs) It tells me that you love the truth. It tells me that you're not ashamed of what the scriptures say, and that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. You know, what we do here at this church, we cover whatever is in front of us as we go through the scriptures together verse by verse. And as we go through it, sometimes we come to a passage that's easy for the culture to accept. Other times we're challenged by what the Word of God says. And they're both good for us. We need to be challenged every once in a while. We need to be corrected. But either way, we are not ashamed of the gospel, nor are we ashamed of the scriptures by which we know the gospel this morning. So as we pick up, you know, there's a lot going on in this text. Um... The Pharisees approached Jesus in verse 2 of Matthew 19 to test him, it says. They were asking him about marriage, a controversial social issue even back then, uh, hoping that Jesus would give the same answer that John the Baptist did. Because what did King Herod do, who's again living up the street at this time of the year? What did he do to John the Baptist? He beheaded him for John the Baptist's views on marriage kind of hoping Jesus would say the same thing as he did, but Jesus nuances his question a little bit differently, fortunately, because uh, despite the culture's confusion on this topic back then and today, Jesus quotes from the book of Genesis, where he said, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Showing us the good news that, you know, Jesus is making the case that his view of the scriptures is God's view of the scriptures, which I know that sounds redundant because it is, but that wasn't obvious to the Pharisees at the time. The culture will have its constantly changing views on, well, let's be honest, pretty much every and any (laughs) basic point of the culture, you know, any topic really. Uh, But the scriptures have remained steadfast year after year, season after season. It does not change because the God who wrote them does does not change. And what does God say is the design of marriage? Well, that's what we want to really zero in on on today's texts. You know, this is largely going to be a topical message based off of these scriptures addressing that very question. You see, something interesting happens. A a redefining of relationship priorities takes place when a marriage happens. You know, as you were growing up, your primary relationship is to your parents. They're the ones who raise you. They're they're your closest companions. They're there for you every step of the way. You know, that's the highest priority relationship that you have growing up. But here it says that when you get married, you leave them. Isn't that interesting? Not like a leave them in the dust and discard them kind of way. That's not, that's not at all what it's saying. You know, Scripture does tell us to honor your father and mother after all. And by the way, that verse just isn't a cute thing that we tell our kids to make them obey us. We're not off the hook for that at any point in our age. We're still to honor and show respect to our parents and grandparents as we get older, showing them honor. And that doesn't just mean obey them as it does when we're I don't know, eight years old. (laughs) But this redefining of this primary relationship takes place. And in their place, a man would hold fast 
to his wife, an expression that means to basically be glued to or be stuck to. The husband and the wife are now fastened to one another in this language, and that they are no longer two in this new relationship, but one flesh. Now, the Bible speaks of many divine mysteries, the Trinity not being the least of which. How can God be both three and one? You know, it's a, it's a fascinating mystery. There's aspects of it that we understand, and then there's aspects of it that are kind of difficult, even for the most trained of theologians, to fully grasp what that could mean. And there's a similar mystery in John 14, 23, where Jesus says both the Son and the Father dwell in the one who believes in them and loves them. Fascinating. And part of the profound mystery that we read during our first reading in Ephesians 5 speaks of this mystical union between Christ and his church, where there's almost no separating them in when, when you ask the question the right way. In Acts chapter 9, where you see Saul of Tarsus persecuting the early church, Jesus comes and knocks him off of his high horse, and what does he say? Some of you guys know. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting He doesn't say my church. He says, why are you persecuting me? He so deeply identifies with his people that to persecute his people is to persecute Christ himself. And you don't want to be found doing that. But that's why he's saying that. There's this beautiful union between Christ and his church. And it's that kind of vein by which marriage is also this mystical union where somehow you are no longer two, but one. And for the most part, we're all adults in the room, and mine are too young to understand, but there there is a physical element of that, yes, of course, of becoming one, but it's far more than that, where God looks at the two and says, you are no, there's no longer a two-ness, there's a oneness in your place. It's It's very fascinating where two distinct identities walk into the wedding ceremony and a new unified identity walks out. You know, I walked into my wedding ceremony myself owning a car and we walked out together with my wife also owning the car. Interesting. This is because marriage is not just a civil union. It is not just a contractual government-recognized relationship. It's not a contract. It's not a piece of paper. It is a covenant. It is a promise, sacred promise between a man, a woman, and God for life, with God joining them together. And once we understand why this is such a big deal, we understand why in our text this morning, Jesus said in verse 6, just jumping right to where we were, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So God created marriage. God designed marriage. God defined what marriage is and is not. And God is the one who joins the two together into one during that ceremony. So The question emerges then, as Jesus highlights, well, then who is man, if God did all of that, to redesign marriage, to redefine marriage, or to separate what God has joined together? 
You know, who, who is going to be on the demolition crew for what God is constructing? You put yourself in a dangerous place when, if that's where you find yourself. And this is where the law of the land and the design of God are actually in conflict with one another. The state has taken the side of Rabbi Hillel, which we talked about last week, who said that you can get a divorce for any reason. We call it irreconcilable differences today, but it's the same thing. Which, when you think about it, is kind of laughable. Because we all have irreconcilable differences. Ashley and I have irreconcilable differences. I... I am a night person. She is a morning person. Those don't reconcile together. <laughs> Those are different. Um, one of us is fairly tidy. The other one, not so much. She is an animal lover. I, not so much. I could care less. Much to the annoyance of my children that are also animal lovers. <laughs> Not that I don't care about them or that I'm going to be mean to them or anything. I just don't care enough to clean up after them. So, yes, that and with all of that, most irreconcilable of all. And this might be shocking for everyone to find out. She is a woman. I know, radical ideas in 2023. (laughs) She is a woman and I'm a man. That is irreconcilable. Those are radical differences. She has radically different physical, spiritual, and emotional needs than I do. And that's not only okay, it's good. God has designed it that way. God has made us to be complementary to one another. Because if we're exactly the same and have all the same needs and have all the same wants and desires, then one of us is not necessary. One of us is redundant, which isn't how God designed it. God designed man and woman to be together in this committed relationship of marriage with a contract of marriage in place, this covenant for the purpose of growing each other, teaching us together to be sensitive to one another's needs, to grow with each other, to, and first, and more, perhaps more importantly than anything else, to teach us about our own relationship with God through this covenant. Now, that's not intuitively taught anymore. It's not intuitively known in our culture. But here's the thing. I learned far more deeply how much God loves me by the way God has called me to love my wife. It's true. And there's an implicit in God's directive to wives, a lesson of how we are to follow God and support his mission and his purpose in this world. God calls us men in Ephesians 5 to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a high calling. That's not easy. My friend Dr. Fazerano says that uh, that God, the the it's it's simple God's directive to men men you go and die die to yourselves and lay your in terms of your passions your desires and your life if necessary lay it all down for her it's real simple in that way and in her side you know in response to this self sacrifice self-sacrificing mentality we are called to be. 
Again, seeking her benefit, providing for her, and leading her towards her betterment. That is how Christ loved his church. That is what he does for us. That's what he has called me to love her as. And in response to that love, she is called to submit to that leadership. And as we are called to submit to God, not, not like submitting in like a feminist kind of way that it gets defined. It's like you're a doormat and you have no opinion. You just follow blindly. That's not what the scriptures say. Don't put words into the Bible. That's not what it says. But rather, following his vision and leadership for the family as he and you together follow and submit to Christ. That's, that's the design here that, as, working together in these different roles for the purpose of God. Seeing that as we are called to die in our relationship to God, as God has radically given so much for me, that I'm called to to love her in that same self-sacrificing way. Now, sadly, God's design for marriage has been undermined on pretty much every front. Not only do the roles not function as they ought, but people don't stay within the confines that God has called us to be. You know, I vowed, as many of you also have at some point, to be wed so long as we both shall live. Now, unfortunately, that's taken by many to mean so long as we both shall like. Or so long as we both shall love. Some people, really, that's what they meant. And that can be dangerous because many people, whether they, whether they realize it or not, get married for that reason. And that's not a good enough merit, reason to get married. Now, also don't put words in my mouth. You don't want to marry somebody who constantly makes you unhappy either. That's, that's certainly not the point. I never had to counsel anybody out of that. But marriage isn't designed to make you happy. It's designed to make you holy. That's a big difference. You know, I, when I used to have a sales job, people would return things all the time because they bought it for the wrong purpose. Oh, I thought this thing was supposed to be used in this way. It turns out I need this other thing. And they would come and get it replaced because, oh, this, this is what I really need. And you know, that, that's, that's what happens when it comes to if you approach marriage for the wrong reason, you're going to want a refund. When you realize, no, this doesn't automatically make me happy all the time. I'm not in a perpetual bliss. Something must be wrong. But rather, as you work out your differences together, you find yourself drawing near to God and being sanctified, being made holy through the process. Funny enough, sociologists have discovered a U-curve when studying the effects of marriage over a long term. That if you get any two people together, any two people together, They're going to be happy at first, of course. But as time goes by, the giddiness kind of fades. The happiness drops over the next couple of months. Then you add a couple of kids to the mix. Find yourself kind of towards the bottom of that curve. And sadly, that's where a lot of people drop out. That's where a lot of people say, okay, you know what, this is it. This is where, I didn't sign up for here. I signed up for here. What happened? And they jump out. They break their commitment. But 
if you what what they don't realize is if you come if you commit to sticking together, it starts to go back up again after that point. Doesn't it's not an L curve where it stays there. It goes back up again. And as the years go by, you'll be amazed at the people who look back on those days where you reach that bottom and realize them as those being formative years. Formative. When you choose to cling to each other and cling to God and his promises with everything that you've got. When you got nothing else, nothing easy or fun about where you are, but you cling to it anyway. And you'll be amazed at the results of just a few years after the fact. You know, unsurprisingly, many of us can look on our Christian walk the same way. You know, I've, I've heard countless, countless testimonies of people who have hit rock bottom financially, spiritually, physically, emotionally, where they have hit rock bottom as you can possibly imagine by all possible means. And they decided at that moment, I don't have anything to my name. I, nothing is going for me, but I am going to cling to Jesus with everything I've got. And I'm going to hold through this somehow. I've got nothing but Jesus. Or maybe you meet him on the way down. Maybe you meet him at the bottom. But you realize when he's down there and you've got nothing else, it's enough. And you'll be amazed at the stories I've heard of people looking back. Five, ten, thirty years after the fact. And realizing that was a formative moment for me. That was the moment where everything changed, where I decided, you know, this is enough for me, where the ch- I'm going to make some changes here at rock bottom that I wouldn't have made if I stayed at the top. But I'm in a much better place now because I made those decisions. Does that make sense to anybody? You know, there's a reason why we cherish hymns like, It is well with my soul. That's a favorite of many. Or abide with me. Or great is thy faithfulness. There's a reason why those hymns strike a particular chord in our hearts. Because none of those hymns were written, you know, during the high and fluffy, everything is wonderful times. No, great is thy faithfulness was taken from the book of Lamentations, where the prophet Jeremiah had literally just watched his city burn to the ground. And he saw God's faithfulness in it. He saw, hey, no, your mercies are new every morning. You took care of me yesterday. The same God who took care of me yesterday is going to take care of me tomorrow and even in the dark days. It's going to be okay. The, and all of these hymns, regardless of the context, were written by people who said, crying from the depths of their heart, all I have is you, God. And yet I still have all that I need. You are enough for me. A profound truth that is worth any trial we might find ourselves it is worth the trial if it's worth discovering that. So if you ride out that U-curve, rather than jumping off at the low point, my encouragement is it gets back up. Spiritually, emotionally, maritally, it's all the truth. It begins to, in fact, in fact, if you ride out that U-curve, it starts to look like a checkpoint after a while. If you continue, if you follow what these sociologists say, it does get much better. Because after all, the only people who get hurt on a roller coaster are those who jump off before the ride is done. Let that image sink in for a moment. 
Now, are there legitimate reasons for divorce? Yes, and we will cover those next week. Uh, Even though marriage is meant to reflect Christ and his church, we still recognize we are not Christ. There are some things that God is more able to handle than we are. And there are things that we often cannot handle. And we we will address that and give it its proper time. I'm not going to rush through that this morning. But before we close, though, the chances of you making it are probably a lot higher than you've been led to believe. You see, we've all heard that statistic that 50% of marriages end in divorce. You've all heard that. It's out there. It is the it is like the most well-known marriage statistic. Uh, there are people in my life who are still not married because of that statistic, because they're worried, ah, it's not worth the risk. However, would you be surprised to know that that is a very misleading statistic? It's not incorrect, but it is very much misleading. You see, 50% of marriages do end in divorce, but that includes your crazy uncle that's been divorced six times. Their six failed marriages and maybe your one successful one, well, he counted for six, yours counted for one. That's why the discrepancy is so high. A more truthful statistic is that out of everyone who's been married, only a third have been divorced. That's, that's much better. That changes the way we emotionally process the idea of committing to marriage. Once you understand kind of the way it can be framed. Furthermore, those who are active in their church, divorce rates are 27 to 50% lower than the average non-church grower. Somewhere between a quarter and half. And there... There, there's so much research on this topic, and I could just stand up here and read you statistics for the next half hour if I really wanted to, but nobody wants that. So I, w- I want to draw your attention to just, just two more that I think are profound. The first is that nominal Christians, meaning those who call themselves Christians but do not actively engage in the faith that they profess, other than an occasional worship service, maybe around the holidays, they are actually 20% more likely to get a divorce than the general population. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if I would have guessed that. But the statistics are pretty, pretty, pretty established for that. And then finally, one study from the University of Texas, San Antonio, said this. And I'm mentioning where I found this from because it's going to sound like I just made this up. But this is a secular university that discovered this. Couples who pray together, pray together daily, have only a 1% divorce rate. And that's rounding up, by the way. The actual number is like 0.6, 0.7, something like that. Isn't that shocking? That's amazing. You see, the actual divorce rate appears to be reflective of how firm the foundation beneath the marriage is. That's really what's on trial. And it takes two to tango. You you can only control so much. But it is interesting that those who believe that the universe is an accident and that there is no God, it's no surprise that they also might treat their marriage like an accident, as if it's also purposeless and unimportant and easily discardable. 
Furthermore, again, with those, those nominal Christians that we talked about, those, those who are barely committed to God seem to be barely committed to each other. And the odds aren't in particularly in their favor. But those who believe that the universe is created for a purpose, that marriage is created with a purpose, and they, those who purposely pursue Jesus together with everything that they have, worshiping together, serving together, loving Jesus together more than they even love themselves or each other. Now, I like those odds. I'd put a bet on that. So what you really believe does have consequences. What do you believe this morning? Do you live like you believe what you profess to believe? Or is this whole Christianity thing just something we passively engage in, you know, just because it's part of our culture, when it's convenient? And if that's you, you know, Jesus is calling you into something even more amazing. Jesus is calling you into something better, something deeper, something more beautiful than we can even wrap our minds around. So if that's you, reach out to him today. And you, you don't need me or anybody here at the church to do it. Reach out in prayer yourself. You know, amazingly, you don't need a theological degree or being able to speak in Elizabethan English to speak to God. Oh, be it how forever thou, my Savior. You don't have to talk like that. You can just speak to God as a man speaks to his friend. You can open up that Bible of yours that somebody gave you years ago. You probably have one. If you don't, I'll give you one. That's not a problem. But shockingly enough, again, it's 2023. Believe it or not, the Bible is written in English now. <laughs> Shocking. No, we can, we can read it ourselves, commune with God that way. I'd encourage you to worship him. You know, when we sing this next song together, we are not putting on a performance. I'm not walking around through the pews making sure you're all on key. <laughs> and I'm grateful nobody's doing that for me. <laughs> no, we are performing together in a sense to an audience of one. So when we sing this next hymn in a few minutes, we're channeling that, these praises, this commitment, the, the, what reflects our hearts to God together as a congregation. So treat it as that, not just a song that we're singing because we like singing. No, it's, it's, it's praise to an audience of one. And then finally, we live our life for him beyond these walls. And that can take many different shapes. It looks very differently from one case to another. For some of us, it might be, it might begin with choosing to honor relationships that we have waiting for us at home. Whatever the case might be, for some of us, that might be a step of faith. Some of, us, that might, some of those things might be harder to do. But you'll be amazed at what happens when you step out to trust the process. When you trust his process. Because Jesus has a way of showing himself faithful when you step out to honor his ways. Don't be surprised at what might happen next. Thanks be to God. Amen.